for October 29th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 539, The Baby Ruth of Theseus. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny, trick-or-treating partners from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out and talking over whatever is on our mind together. No thought unshared. That's our motto here at Overthinking It, where we have five or six mottos. And it's the spooky time of year. And I'm your host, Spooky Matt Rather. And I'm here with my good friend, Spooky. Key Peter Fenzel. Hello, Matt. Hello, hello, Pete. And spooky Mark Lee. Hello, Matthew. Ow! Yeah, it's I turned, Hall- I turned into a werewolf. It's I'm back. It's Halloween time, and and uh, always around this time of year, the you, you got your uh, overthinker Jordan Stokes's, and you got your overthinker Matt Belinkies, and you got your people, uh, your other overthinkers who are, are sometime uh, hosts on the podcast, and uh, they're always they're always coming at me like, uh, hey, it's time to do the horror movie episode. Hey, it's time to do the scary stuff episode, right? And I put the kibosh on that uh you know quicker quicker than a a 10 year old polishing off a three pack of reese's peanut butter cups because i don't like scary things i don't like i don't like movies with i don't like action movies with jump scares even and so you know horror movies are right out for me i don't understand uh, I just sort of don't understand the point, and I understand that my aesthetic and intellectual betters, many of them, love that genre. I just can't stand it. So I am putting my flag in the ground, my non-spooky flag in the ground. Guys, this is going to be the non-spooky Halloween episode. What do you think of that? Yeah. What do you th- what do you think of that? I'm I'm filled with fear and dread, oddly <laughs> enough. <laughs> I'm filled with Charleston shoes, interestingly enough. So there we go. Is that uh yeah, do you do you uh what's your uh what is that? let's let's talk candy, right? Ooh, uh, uh, if if only because the New York Times magazine published the candy issue this weekend and uh, our I should say our content partners at the New York Times magazine <laughs> published the candy issue this weekend. So we're we're very the, the, the Times is on it, as they say. And we uh we have a couple of articles here that that we could talk about but i don't know how halloween candy i i've I've been out of the trick-or-treating mainstream i have to say uh because i'm a grown-up and i can eat candy whenever i want i could just go to the drugstore right now (laughs) and just buy candy i could just buy candy and i you know i don't do that unless i have feelings but uh i i you know i i don't uh trick-or-treat i don't have that little that little uh addictive high of like what are they going to give me? What are they, you know, what is the thing going to be? Is it going to be something dumb like a, a candy apple that my mom's going to make me throw away or, a, you know, something like that? Or is it going to be very, you know, very cool like a, a Reese's peanut butter cup or a, a, a three pack of Reese's peanut butter cups, you know? Um, so can we just do a quick round the horn and say it old question of the week style and say, what was your favorite candy when you were in prime trick or treating years? And uh, has it changed? What is your favorite candy today? Uh, first in the alphabet, first in our hearts. Oh, it's been a while since I've said that. Pete, I want a hug. Aww. That's really Aww. nice. Uh, Peter Fenzel. Hey, I, I love duh. Three Musketeers bars. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is odd, right? Because the ingredients that are in Three Musketeers bars are in other things. Milky Ways I also liked, but I think in my heart I liked the Three Musketeers bars more. Snickers bars I liked a great deal, but I think in my heart I liked the Three Musketeers bars more. It's hard to consider now liking a candy. Not that I don't eat it. Not that I don't eat way too much of it when it's available. But liking it in the same way it just seems strange i feel alienated from the notion of liking candy yeah (laughs) and maybe that's part of the spirit that's moving us tonight 
is the spirit of alienation of liking candy. We're, we're trying to recapture the glory, the glory years and the excitement of our youths, right? I suppose that could be one of the yearnings. But just to point out one dimension of it, the I think that some of our conventional wisdom about candy might be in need of reexamination. And maybe when I say conventional wisdom, what I'm more thinking of is how I think about it in, and how I think you think about it. When I, how do I assume other people think and care about candy? So in this case, and this is all about the Three Musketeers bar, all the Three Musketeers bar really is is this chocolate and this nougat. It's relatively light. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It's sort of a baseline by which other candies seem to be constructed. And it doesn't have a great deal of, of active textural interaction. Its mouthfeel is, is distinct, of course, but I think as you get older, it becomes kind of disgusting. I don't know. But, but the, the point is that a candy can have a shiny wrapper. A candy can have a bunch of secrets inside of it. It can be stuffed with things. It can have things on top. It can be cool shapes. And I got to think that on some level, there's some sort of broad, commonly held assumption that the more that candies sort of have features the, the candies have either whether it's almost like uh if you imagine sort of two different islands and one of them is more or less round and one of them has fjords and and sort of peninsulae and isthmuses and is divided up into multiple pieces and there's great valleys and great mountains and uh, you would think that candy is trying to access the level of enthusiasm that this second island would have over the first island, just as a sort of weird metaphor. And yet the Three Musketeers bar being so simple was the one that I liked the most. And so there's just the idea of like, oh, it's it's uh, it's a peanut butter cup, but it's got crunch. You know, it's crunch peanut butter cup and it's shaped like a rabbit for Easter. I thought you were doing just, oh, I thought you were doing a, a little typology of candy there. Right. Because there are the round candies. There are the contained right. candies and then there are the untamed candies, you know, okay. uh, right. Like a, a peppermint that, you know, in the cellophane that you unwrap with the red and white stripes that is a round candy. It's a contained candy. Mm. Right. And M&M is a contained candy. Uh, red vines are an untamed candy right, right? uh pixie sticks are an untamed candy yeah, and but, yeah. three musketeers are uh, are an interesting case because the untamed nougat uh in french it's pronounced nougat <laughs> <laughs> uh is is enshrouded is wrapped is hidden is uh uh tamed and contained within the slightly harder chocolate chocolate shell not a crunchy chocolate shell uh but uh at least a a semi semi hard chocolate shell right and that that like it uh Dionys- it, it combines dionysian and apollonian it combines masculine and feminine uh you know it's a, a very it's right because it's a it's a a candy bar is a, a long sticky up thing right but it also has a kind of interiority a kind of secret interiority <laughs> that is yeah. uh that you a bower that, of bliss if you will exactly right, and yeah. you, like you 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 know the the it's something both to be kind of asserted to be kind of stuck into your mouth right and also to be penetrated into that's lovely i really appreciate that uh, now we know what the three musketeers were doing in their spare time i guess um it's uh but yeah no i, I totally hear what you're saying i would even further develop it into you know candies that you you know sort of salival cal- cal- candies versus dental candies right? uh-huh. Uh-huh. the ones that you use your teeth versus the ones that you dissolve like a venus flytrap <laughs> in your mouth uh, and yeah, I guess the different the fruity candies versus the chocolatey candies right. was always a distinction that mattered a lot to me. The super chewy candies are a subset. The peanutty, the there's there's a certain uh, there's a certain um, threshold. I guess I don't know whether it's the baby Ruth of Theseus or what, but it's like the more if you have a peanut based candy, there's a point in which you can replace enough of the pieces in the peanut based candy with things that aren't peanuts that it ceases to feel to taste really like peanuts. There's sort of like several distinctive quantities of peanut that can be within a candy that give it entirely different feels, right? So Baby Ruth is very different from a Snickers, right? Which is very different from a uh, peanut butter cup or uh, you know even a peanut M and M. It's and it's it's just it's 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 compelling, but at the same time, I don't really understand. 
I guess as a child, you're excited about it because the world is full of these things that you haven't discovered yet. And the taxonomy of candy is attractive because you see it and experience it as a sort of uh, geography that extends. Right. Although, I mean, I get excited about the taxonomy of taxonomy of cars. And it's like, oh, this car has this and this car has this. So this one has a spoiler. This one has a hatchback. And no, you had to understand there's midsize, there's compacts, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason, the taxonomy of candies has ceased to captivate me at 38 years old. I wonder why. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I guess I do wonder why, but I just I'm not surprised. But I just wonder what it is about the taxonomy of candy that doesn't enthrall me the way that other sorts of taxonomies seem to do so easily. I mean, I could try to answer that question, Pete, uh, on your behalf. And I think for many adults as well, it's just like in, as we get older and also as the culture has shifted, like uh, the uh, emphasis on nutrition and like heightened awareness of the crap that we're putting into our bodies, like has snuffed out uh, enthusiasm for candy, including like, you know, learning more about the taxonomy for it. Is that fair? I suppose, although there are all sorts of fancy artisanal candy kind of things, right? Although we should also stick to the question of the week. Mark Lee, what's your favorite candy? Um, why I'm glad you asked. Uh, and if okay, you want to launch so, from that into the previous conversation, you're more than welcome to do so. I, I, I'm tempted to launch into another conversation about Kit Kats. Um, mm. but I think we'll, we'll get to that in a second because if I'm going to honestly answer this, like, well, there's a question like about like just currently favorite candy or like growing up. Well, yeah, no, both, both. When when you were in prime Halloween years and now. Oh, okay. All right. Prime Halloween years, it was definitely, of all things, Hershey's Special Dark. You guys know Special Dark? Yeah. Which is like the dark version of the Hershey's, that's so Hershey's chocolate. That's so interesting. I did not have the sophistication for even that, you know, uh, as adulterated a dark chocolate as that one is. Like, I, I was uh, into much more basic, much more hashtag basic, sweeter tastes, milk chocolate kind of stuff. So, Mark, you were a, a sophisticate long before it was uh, long before it was cool, you know? <laughs> That that's uh, the the first time anyone's called five year old Mark uh, from you know confused kid in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, sophisticated. But let's roll with it. I was sophisticated. No, what really was going on was that uh, it had the word special in it. No, this is like the power of marketing on like a uh, on a small child's brain, right? You tell the kid it's special, and therefore it is. Beyond that, though, like to to actually give a little more critical thought to this. Um, and now we're getting into like our, uh, our our flavor and taste discussions and see how this goes. Um, it, when you're like gorging on one of the most uh, Halloween candy chocolate, like the Three Musketeers, the Snickers, and the regular Hershey's, it has like that pretty run of the mill milk chocolate flavor, right? Um, but the special dark cuts through that with its bitterness and therefore stands out in, in your palate. Mm. Um, so beyond just like the lizard brain marketing of putting the word special on the package, um, it did have a little bit of extra, uh, a little, little flavor there to, to stand out. Yeah. Uh, what about today? Well, um, partially because I do love this candy, uh, this chocolate, um, partially because I went to Japan recently, but more, mostly because like, I want to have this conversation on the, on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to go with Kit Kat. So should we talk about Kit Kat now? We're going to do this thing? Well, you, uh, yeah, you want to yeah, – I mean, have we been talking long enough, Mark? Is it time for a break? Ha, uh, yes. Uh, I will break you off a piece of this discourse uh, bar. Um, so let's talk about Kit Kat for a second. Um, uh, if you're not aware, Kit Kat is this whole crazy obsession in Japan, um, partly because uh, it's a coincidental cognate – for uh, the phrase, you will surely win in Japan. So over the years, it's become sort of like, you know, good luck charm to give someone a Kit Kat, like before uh, a big high school, uh, a big, big exam or something like that. Um, and so if you go to Japan, um, because it is a land of exotic uh, treats and things that are somewhat familiar to Westerners, but also completely different, um, you know, Japan has its complete, uh, a unique and vast Kit Kat subculture where they produce regional varieties, seasonal varieties. It's not like, well, I went to the Dwayne Reed, um, the drugstore before um, recording this podcast, because I'm an adult and I can just do that, um, and bought a Kit Kat. And, and I had one option for the Kit Kat. Um, and if you go to Japan, though, there are literally hundreds of them. And uh, it's kind of a national obsession. It's become a, a, a takeaway uh, souvenir. When you go to Japan, 
to bring back the special Kit Kats, the green tea Kit Kats, the mochi, uh, Japanese sweet potato, purple Kit Kats, all kind of good stuff like that. Um, and uh, in honor of, in recognition of this phenomenon, the Times Magazine, in its candy issue, uh, put out this article, which I recommend that you read. Um, it inexplicably leaves out the part of the, the, the linguistic uh, significance of Kit Kat to Japanese culture, but I feel you on that, so you're good on that. But read the article in particular for its description of the wafers. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read that. Um, I'm going to get your reactions to it, and then um, I'm actually going to open up this package of Kit Kat and consume it uh, with you all on the air so we can all go on this culinary journey together. Does that sound good? Sounds great, Mark. All right, let's do this. Hi. Hi. Sugoi. Ano. Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, the the author of this uh, of this article goes to a Japanese Kit Kat factory, and uh, and there's this old discussion about what makes a Kit Kat Kit Kat. Is it the chocolate? Is it the wrapping? Is it this? That? There's a no. It's the wafer, right? Uh, the the wheat based wafer that gives it the satisfying crunch that allows you to uh, to to give someone a break of the Kit Kat bar. Um, and uh, in the factory, like the wafer is producing the big sheet and the author uh, is, is allowed to touch the sheet. And this is how um, I, I don't know the gender he or she. This is how the author describes uh, this 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 moment. Uh, what I wanted to know was if this wafer, the one in my hands, would pass Nestle standards. But EY wouldn't share many details about that. All I knew was that the wafer was huge, golden, marked with square cups and totally weightless. That if it hadn't been still warm from the oven, I wouldn't have known it was there. That if this was the soul of a Kit Kat, then holding the soul of a Kit Kat was like holding nothing at all. Now, is that deep or is that just a bunch of nonsense? Man, God, it totally makes sense that the New York Times is an internationally respected media outlet and overthinking it is like a blog that some friends do. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't tell if you're being serious or trolling. No. <laughs> it's a little, <laughs> it's a, it's a little uh, inflated, isn't it? I mean, I think they're subjecting that Kit Kat to a level of scrutiny. <laughs> it probably doesn't deserve. Probably, yeah. I mean, the soul of the Kit Kat, um, you know, not, nothing at all. It's like, uh, well, I mean, okay. So, what is it? What are they trying to say I mean, there? Right? It's yeah, go, yeah. good. So, okay. So I think that there's some actually interesting stuff to talk about here, and it has to do somewhat with these weird taxonomies of candy that we've been talking about. The presence of the wafer in the Kit Kat has effects on the consumption of the Kit Kat that are not necessarily directly related to the consumption of the wafer as an object in itself. Uh, right. The texture of the chocolate in the Kit Kat is interrupted by the presence of the wafer, the sound and crunch crunch in general is this interesting culinary phenomenon in that it happens. It seems like there's certain areas of food production that are concerned with crunch as almost a as a transcendental good, right? As an add crunch to something. And you that is the most important thing and the greatest thing and the most wonderful thing ever. And yet there's also entire areas of cuisine where you might never experience crunch like at all, right? Like you go to a chili, I guess maybe with some veg, crisp vegetables might be your main source of getting crunch uh, if you're not eating like toast or crackers. Uh, it's not like, you know, I mean, maybe the char on the outside of a meat might be a little bit crunchy or crispy, I'm, I'm like my mouth is watering now thinking about eating a big pot of chili rather than a Kit Kat bar. But just the idea that the presence of the wafer is able to produce the crunch and that there is something to be said for the most industrially efficient manner in which one might produce the crunch effect. And as such, if the soul of the Kit Kat is nothing at all, you're really talking about a different sort of idea of what food is than something like, say, chicken wings that are crispy on the outside because there the experience of the actual underlying chicken is really important to the reason why you're eating it in the first place. And and the crisp and the crunch on the outside from any sort of char that it has is kind of mostly like a, a value add, right? It's a nice to have. It's not the core of the experience. But in the Kit Kat, you know, I guess this could also kind of raise the question of like this is might be one way you could think of something as being a candy or like candy in that the attributes that in other kinds of food might be considered to be nice to haves are the main purpose for which the, or the main sort of sensual experience of what the candy is. 
So the wafer doesn't have to be made of chicken or pumpernickel or whatever. It doesn't have to have any substance to it in terms of its own kind of flavor and weight. But it just has to produce that crunch, that texture. That's all it is. And so in the sense of you're saying when you're holding the wafer, you're holding nothing at all. And it's the soul of the Kit Kat. Uh, that is, that is, I think, a little bit of a misnomer because the you you can't really understand the wafer without understanding the wafer covered in chocolate. Might, that might be the way to kind of carry it out. Not saying it's a misnomer, but if we were to overthink this to a degree further, I, I would say that uh, that really what you're looking at is you know you're trying to look at the moon without the sun reflecting off of it, and you're not seeing anything. <laughs> right? Wow. Is the issue is that That's like the, the wafer is a medium. Right. The wafer is a medium for interaction. It is not something like light bouncing off the wafer is not the medium that you use to judge it. Right. The gravity yeah, 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 pulling yeah. the wafer towards the center of the earth is not the force that you're using to judge it. Go ahead, Matt. It, well, it's like the, the famous David Foster Wallace story that he told, I think, as a commencement address where he's talking about the, the two fish, two young fish swimming one way, meet an old fish. The old fish, hey, boys, how's the water? They swim away and the, they uh, turn to each other and say, what the F is water? You know, right? Like that. that like, it's a it's a medium. It's a it's a matrix for experience rather than being uh, an experience itself, right? It's a uh, it's a precondition or a uh, a prolegomenon to you know to experience rather than being you know part of the experience itself. So if you're holding wafer, if you're holding the giant, you know, just extruded sheet of wafer uh in your hand. And I guess there are 3 of them in a Kit Kat. They're stacked up 1 2 3 with uh chocolate sort of butter chocolate cream in the middle and then a, a, a chocolate coating on the outside right and that that like they they the chocolate sort of permeates when you bite and like it's uh it's a it's a it's a nothingness that through its nothingness uh becomes a somethingness you know um there's also an interesting inversion of base and superstructure you know, that, that, uh, in what Pete is describing, whereas like crunchy chicken wings, crunchy meat, crunchy, you know, a lot of the things, the crunch is outside. You could say that one aspect of crunch is that it is a crunch is a defensive mechanism, right? And like overcoming the crunch in order to enjoy your food has to do with, a uh, a, a sort of earning, uh, earning your food almost as a kind of predation. And as a, a successful predator, you crunch through into your food or like you break the rind or the, the shell of the nut or whatever. Um, that's a, it's sort of outside crunch belongs on the outside and, and moistness, uh, on the inside. But, but by inverting this dichotomy, the Kit Kat brings you, uh, a certain kind of, um, you know, a certain kind of singular experience uh, that exploits what Pete calls the transcendental good of crunch for, um, you know, the ulterior aims of the Nestle Corporation. Mm-hmm. Well, I would also, case, uh, oh, go ahead. To, to be clear, the, uh, in the United States, the Hershey company makes these under license from Society de Produit Nestle SA. Um, but uh, shall we do this? Um, oh, yeah. So, so we put yeah. all this theory to the test? Yeah. yeah uh, put... Kit Kat theory and Kit Kat practice? Dude, Give yeah, us a dude. break, Mark. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to start. We'll, we'll talk, we're, we're talking about the crunch. We're talking about sort of the, the total experience of Kit Kat, right? Uh, and also in uh, the sort of the Japanese, the rarefied Japanese experience versus the more quotidian American experience. Um, the Kit Kats in Japan, they're, they're not surprisingly because it's freaking Japan, right? They're, they're exquisitely packaged. They've got freaking Japanese on it, so it looks cool and like the the, <laughs> the nonsense of very English that's here. Um, and we'll we'll post a picture of the the particular Kit Kat wrapper that I have uh, with the show notes. But like, uh, you know, it's got the familiar Kit Kat logo, which is the same across the world. Um, but it's also got the words crisp wafers, like in a cartoon font, uh, crisp wafers and milk chocolate, um, as if it were um, oh I don't know a Hanna Barbera cartoon from the 1960s, something that is uh, not to be taken seriously. Um, just kind of uh, says enjoyment uh, really, really loudly on top of it. It also has uh, it blares out 210 calories per pack. So um, that's how much uh, uh, my life is going to be cut short by consuming this very unhealthy thing uh, for your enjoyment. Uh, enjoy this podcast, uh, listeners. All right. Um, okay. The nutrition facts in the back. Who cares about that? I got the. But okay. So right on that. Right. The nutrition facts are just like a bunch of noise uh, that you kind of can easily gloss over on the back, but on the front it says very 
loudly in the top left hand, bottom left hand corner, 210 calories per pack. Is that a is that a New York thing? Is that a New York City? It might it might be yeah um, yeah. But so uh, listeners, uh, if it's different in your market, uh, in your uh, particular market area, let us know. Um, okay, the, the, the overall the color is, is orange, and I think it's orange year round, right? But uh, is that done like specifically for to maximize its appeal during Halloween? I don't know. Um, okay, so let's do this. Is I thought real, the brand first, color of Kit Kat of of straight up Kit Kat was red. Was like white, white and a kind of stop sign red. I I, I might be. It, it is it is red bordering on orange. I think I mean, the the light in my in my room might not be the best for you know specifically color grade this, but um, it's not not orange. Let's put it that way. At least this time of year. Mm. Um, okay, sorry. So I'm going to open the package here. Um, Overthinking a podcast has now become an ASMR podcast, so enjoy this. If you can even hear it. Oh yeah, it's coming through. Right. Opening the wrapper. Is that how it was? You could close talking on ASMR podcasts. Yeah, but you gotta like whisper. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I've got the thing like shoved up my face. So I'm smelling it already. The chocolate smell is like, um, uh, is an important part, kind of unleashing like the packaging. Um, right. So you have the silver backing then becomes uh contrasted with the brown of the chocolate and you see the wafers peeking, peeking through um but an important part of this experience as well is that um the at least like opening it from the from the back of the packaging the back of the Kit Kat, the row four is presented to me and i have to like pick the thing up and flip it over and i get to see the uh, embossed Kit Kat uh logos from the front so am i opening it wrong or is the packaging design so that it's presenting the back to you? Mm. Um, let that be a, mis- a mystery. All right, so uh, let's do this. Let's go break you off a piece of this Kit Kat bar and see if I can produce a satisfying snap for the ASMR crowd out there. Okay, it's not quite the, the cursed snap. It's a bit of a more dull break sound. But I got one of these suckers here in my hands. And the other thing is like worth, worth noting when eating chocolate, right, is the melt concern. Um, as you've got uh, little bits of it kind of starting to stain your fingers, you got to think about how long this thing has been sitting at room temperature um, or at something above room temperature. Okay, so let's do this. Ready? Three, two, one. I heard it. It was the, the daintiest little crunch. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and that's oh. uh, <laughs> like, like several like several human experiences. It uh, eating candy leads you to a place of deeper and deeper silence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so let's dig in just a little bit more. Um, the immediate impact of the flavor is you do notice a sharp sweetness. Let's just cut the right word for it. Like in, in, it's a pretty intense sweetness as it comes through. It doesn't have the bitterness of the Hershey Special Dark. As I was describing earlier, um, it is definitely kind of like that, um, you know, satisfying American standard milk chocolate flavor to it. Um, and then, of course, you know, your, your teeth meet the resistance of the wafers themselves pretty quickly um, to get that satisfying texture that we've been talking so much about. Um, so on the packaging, it very clearly shows the three layers um, and it looks like something very precise, like, um, I don't know, like the, like a Mayan temple or something like that. But once you've bitten into it. In the middle of it, it all just kind of becomes obscured. I mean, you can if you look very closely. Yes, okay, I can see the two intervening uh, cream layers along with the three wafer layers. But I'll be honest, this is the first time that I've ever thought about the number of layers of wafers in a Kit Kat. It was all just kind of an undifferentiated mass of crunch in the middle. Um, And uh, another article which we'll link to in uh, in this New York Times uh, magazine piece is like. Um, a, a course on how to become an expert candy taster. Um, and so it's all about essentially like, you know, the vast majority of the stuff that we put into our mouths, we really do not put up, put to any sort of scrutiny of this type. Um, but once you do, well, then it just opens up worlds upon worlds, layers upon layers. And, and it, 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 it I, I go back and forth whether that really, truly does enhance uh, can enhance in all circumstances, maybe in some, but in all circumstances, does it it actually enhance uh, the enjoyment of this, or is it just like a fun intellectual 
exercise to go through. If it's the latter, I suppose there's no harm in that. I mean, what what is what is this podcast if just that, right? If satisfying intellectual process to go through. So keep discussing that. I'm going to finish off the Kit Kat. Mm. Well, I, I'm I'm going to jump in just with my favorite candies. I was a I was a big. Um, I was a big Three Musketeers uh, kid as a kid. Um, also liked Red Vines. Uh, you know, still you know, still my favorite mainstream licorice candy. Now, now uh, Matt, Red Vines, Twizzlers. What's the? I've never really liked any of them, but I also have never really understood the difference. What is the difference between Red Vines and Twizzlers? Uh, like, phenomenologically or, like, in terms of their... <laughs> what is the difference between Red Vines <laughs> and Twizzlers? Uh, well, P. Red Vines uh, is a brand of red licorice candy manufactured in Union City, California by the American Licorice Company. Red Vines' original red twists are also sometimes referred to as red licorice, despite containing no licorice. None of them contain any licorice, right? That's part of the deal. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, the red, yeah, red licorice is not, right, it's not licorice. Now, I, I thought Twizzlers were um, strawberry flavored. I think, okay. uh, I think that uh, red, oh, this Wikipedia article now is telling me that red vines were originally raspberry flavored. So it's a different, I guess there was, in 1952, there was a small formula tweak. But it's not like, so uh, red vines are less dense. When fresh, they're less hard. They go stale, in which case they become kind of uh, more of a bitey candy instead of a chewy candy. But, um, you know, uh, they get kind of a actually not totally unpleasant sort of leather, leathery texture uh, like more and less a, you know, uh, yielding toothsome texture that they, uh, you know, that they have originally. Uh, the... Uh, and they are not, they're individual. Like a Twizzlers is, there's like a block of Twizzlers. It's like extruded as one thing, right? And, and Red Vines are, are origin, are, uh, individual red licorice sticks with, uh, with the twists and they're, they're enclosed. They come to a kind of satisfying crimp at each end of the, uh, of the, the licorice vine you know uh whereas twizzlers are um just sort of chopped off flat you know uh as though by a cleaver and each kind of brick <laughs> of twizzlers from which you peel off one twizzler at a time uh and it's they're they're a little less plasticky now this is this is really 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 uh kind of delving too deep into a candy into two a comparison of two candies both of which are majority corn syrup a little red dye and uh and some you know minuscule number of drops of of super concentrated artificial flavor but uh these are the th- i mean i don't know these are these are this wars have been fought over less i'm sure mm, interesting yeah because certainly there's a lot of different right? Yeah, it does help a lot. I actually, I wonder whether Red Vine, are Red Vine's more of a regional thing or are they available nationwide? Because they weren't really a thing for me when I was a kid in New I Jersey. think it is like, to, to, to my knowledge, Twizzlers are nationwide, but more predominant uh, on the East Coast, maybe east of the Mississippi, maybe just gotcha. south, outside of the Southwest. But Red Vines seem like a Southwest kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, it's good to understand the difference in these things. So, so you are now you are a Three Musketeers fan. The discussion of Three Musketeers we've had previously does that serve to elucidate your own? It does. Fandom? Yeah, it, it does. I actually want to. I want to delve into a different candy and and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps make a controversial pick. I used to like the uh, vanilla cake flavored Hostess cupcakes. Are you you're familiar? Oh. The non- and you would characterize that as a candy. That's exactly what I'm. Okay. I'm you know point you know point mm. of point of order, mm. Mr. Chairman. Uh, mm. Is is that a candy? They were sold in the same rack as the candy at the gas station convenience store where I used to buy candy when I you know when I was a kid, right? Like it wasn't like they were segregated off into the bakery section of the convenience store, uh, you know. Um, they they were made by a company whose parent company also makes candies, right? Like they, they uh, were sugary, but, but they were cakes. They were you know they were flour based rather than uh, being sort of chocolate or fruit or nut or sugar based. That said, 
is is not <laughs> Socrates is not a Kit Kat flower based. You know, I mean, are we dealing with the the baby Ruth of Theseus again, <laughs> where like it starts out as being mostly peanuts and then you gradually take out the peanuts and replace it with more of the kind of sugary candy elements until you move through the Snickers and in towards the Reese's where the idea that you're eating peanuts anymore just seems mischaracterized. I can imagine a hostess cupcake or a ho ho or a ding dong or whatnot that has been so diminished in its cakeness that it has become a candy. Yeah. I, I can I can conceive of it. I don't know what it would necessarily look like, but I do know that a hostess cupcake doesn't really taste like a cupcake. Like when I would do, if you would get a cupcake for like a birthday party or something, like when I say a cupcake, no, a hostess cupcake, I think that there's an intuitive difference there between those two things. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think? Is that yeah, a reasonable oh, thing to sort of assume? In, indubitably, sir. Right. Right, right. And so then, okay, that difference exists. What then is the next difference? I would say that a ho-ho is less of a cupcake than a hostess cupcake. Yeah, it's a ho-ho is more of a candy than a hostess cupcake. Right. Uh, yeah. But we're still kind of moving in that direction. Yes. We're kind of like, we're trying to get trying to get to that candy place. Right. Whereas, oh gosh, I mean, what are those, um, what's the name for those cookies? Pepperidge Farm makes some of them. The cookies that are kind of cylindrical and very thin. Uh, you know what I'm talking about that you might even use as a straw under certain circumstances. Oh yeah, okay, I know the ones you're you're thinking about. I had a favorite Pepperidge Farm cookie growing up, but but uh, go on. Yeah, the the uh, cigar shaped cookies. Yeah, uh, it's a wafer cigar shaped kind of thin wafer, sometimes with like black black and white chocolate and vanilla stripes in um, it or something like that. They're they're called pirouettes. Right, um, right. But but googling for cigar uh, cookie will will return this result. Right. And so it's interesting because I feel like a pirouette is something sort of like what we're talking about from a cookie towards a candy. But I don't know if it crosses any sort of threshold wherein it feels candy enough. I I would also even propose that something like a moon pie is also a departure from a cake, but maybe isn't becoming a candy because – the presence of the flour, which is kind of the non-candy ingredient, kind of asserts itself more strongly the more dense the moon pie is, which moon pies are often pretty dense, right? And whoopie pies and such have like a lot of substance to them, even though they're not really cakes per se. In like you, you could different, you could say a difference. You could see a difference between a moon pie and a cake. Uh, and but yeah, I guess it's tricky. I mean, is is a good functional definition of candy? Would you give it out at Halloween for trick or treating? Is a good functional definition of a candy? something above like x sugar content is it measured more by the absurdity of the font that's used on the box because <laughs> you look at look at a box of ding dongs which i think is we're getting pretty close you know fr- away from hostess cupcakes towards candy and look at a box of ding dongs and it's like there is nothing in this thing that is at all trying to nourish your body it is all about the sensation uh i guess i would also one another thing to add to this whole taxonomy of the candiness of things would be you could think of it in terms of alcohol, right? Like an alcoholic drink that has so much fruity, sweetie mixture in it that it's like, oh, it just tastes like candy uh, <laughs> because the fact that it has booze in it has been so kind of removed from the experience of it that it it, it has taken on this different quality. Those things that had been nice to haves are now the core of the experience, and the sort of booze is the nice to have that's yeah, sort of the, associated. With. They're sort of they're sort of out of balance, right? Like mm-hmm. there 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 is a proper there is an order. There is a great chain of being. You know, there is an order <laughs> to the candy universe, and like so much so much of it is about is about balance. Is about the uh, the uh, what the interior and exterior. The and I'm I was kind of wondering why I was drawn to all these kind of liminal cases, these sort of edge or corner cases uh, in candies. You know, do, doing a, a sort of ridiculous bit earlier on. Three Musketeers as a uh, as a you know sort of um, gender non non binary uh, sort of experience, and that's like I, I think it's because the kind of the proper experience of candy is as a uh, as a kind of detente. You know, it's a, candy is a, uh, a productive set of of opposed forces counterpoised uh in a in a equilibrium of some sort and my uh my favorite candy as an adult is marshmallow i like 
marshmallow. I just interesting. I because marshmallow is it is neither solid nor liquid. Uh, it is it is the savoriness of eggs and meringue um, combined with the sweetness of sugar. You know, uh, it is uh, b- both kind of shaped and sort of untamed. You know, the the oozy toasted marshmallow, and it is part of the the perfect dessert, which is a s'more. And uh, that that uh, and I'm. Uh, fight me, you know. Can, can, can we back up the truck here? This is the first time I've ever heard a marshmallow referred to as savory, like an egg. Well, it's like, not, unpack that. No, it doesn't taste like an egg. It's sweet. It's sweet, and I guess uh, you know, it's it's marshmallow is is what is meringue, right? It's egg white um, at the at the bottom. And, and you're not talking about actual marshmallows, though. No, not marshmallows. The plant. That is right. what, like a reed. That's sort of a stalk with a uh, what a long a kind of a tip. You know, um, in Hamlet, they're referred to as uh, uh, long purples. That liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. Uh, that no, that's a marshmallow, right? But no, the 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 like jet puffed, you know, uh, bag of bag of candies, you know, I don't know. They're, they're sweet, but they're not too sweet. I guess you can get like industrially produced ones. I I do eat a lot of artisanal marshmallow and that's, um, that is, uh, they tend to be, have more kinds of flavors rather than the, uh, the canonical, um, the canonical super sweet Jeff jet puffed marshmallow, but even like even vanilla, if you consider vanilla, as a taste, it's not necessarily like a candy taste per se, if you were to taste it um, all by itself. And and if you could like isolate it from your associations that you have with all of the ice cream and all of the cakes and all of the, you know, candies and things like that, that you've had that are, that are vanilla flavored. Like if you were just to kind of experience a vanilla bean in its unmediated fashion, I, I'm not sure you would call it a, a sweet or candy taste um itself so like it does uh counterpoise all the the sugar in it right though it's not i mean i i don't know i wouldn't tuck into a a, a dinner of like marshmallows and mashed potatoes it's not savory in that sense mm-hmm. oh. yeah how, i'm just i'm just fascinated by this have I, i'm sorry have i, I want con- to learn have i confounded I want to you? learn more <laughs> yeah you have like how do you eat them do you snack on them do you take like the the big sack of marshmallows and like you know sit on the couch and and and, and pop them in your mouth or like you know just kind of chew around one while you're watching an episode of uh, your favorite prestige streaming television show yeah absolutely a game game of thrones and you know playing chubby bunny or something <laughs> like that um i am the water on the wall i am the sword in the darkness no it's uh it's not like that i don't know i don't i uh I do do s'mores uh, from time to time. It's a uh, it's a hell of a hell of a thing. But like I I generally enjoy marshmallow when it's a component of another of another dish. It's it's clearly the king of that that uh, dessert. But when it's you know a, uh, a chocolate bar with like marshmallow on top or something like that, or or any of a number of you know modern pastry chefs takes on s'mores, you know, or uh, I don't know what 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 have you. Some like uh, uh, I I get marshmallows sometimes as at, at my, as my mix in at the Cold Stone when I'm eating uh, when I'm eating ice cream. Um, wow, that's a bold move, man. Yeah, Matt, like you, I'm, I'm learning so much about you in this conversation. <laughs> 20, this is really, 20, this is really quite a lot. Twenty years of friendship, and you, you're never, you're never not surprised, right? Yeah, I also learned that uh, marshmallows, at least for some recipes, call for egg whites. Like that, the the intersection of the marshmallow and an egg, like a chicken egg, had never occurred to me until this moment yeah i think that's what gives it the that's what gives it the structure the kind of the whipped you know mousse like um structure is the the you know the the mechanical not leavening but the kind of mechanical uh, uh, agitation of the egg whites i mean we also have like you know a um a marshmallow theseus thing going on here too right where um I, i have to assume like the industrial produced ones 
don't ha- don't use egg whites. They they've replaced that with xanthan gum or something. Uh, yeah, uh, well, it's gelatin. They use gelatin, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So it's interesting to think of gelatin in this context, right? Because gelatin, just the history of gelatin is sort of as an anti-candy in the sense of like they first tried to use it as military food before they realized that it had like so little nutritional value by weight. The more they learned about food that it wasn't actually nourishing people. Uh, right. I think because because it's like gelatin was used by the French military during the Napoleonic Wars as a food stuff. And then in the following decades, the calorie was discovered. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. this is not good for food. <laughs> Maybe gelatin isn't the answer. So it's sort of like a, a non candy that became a candy as human knowledge progressed. Uh, in that sense, I'm intrigued by the idea of the marshmallow as a candy. It's really interesting. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, OK, quick, quick round on on worst candies. Oh, um, I mean, I joked about Charleston shoes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I hated candy with nuts as a kid because I felt like it was taking away from what a candy ought to be, which is overpoweringly sweet. Right. And like this has to do I think there are some there is some sort of like developmental research that our tastes change as we get. I mean, our tastes change, obviously, as we get older because we get more experience of the world. But uh, well, more than that. Yeah, it's definitely more than there that. is some kind of like organically based change in, in yeah. our tastes and things like that. And like the, the nuts like interfered with the overpowering kind of cloying sweetness of the candies that I liked and, and thus were an ab- abomination. I hated really chewy candies that would get stuck in my teeth and wouldn't come out. Yeah. It just was such an unpleasant experience, uh, and, and I just I just didn't really relish it at all. Like uh, the chewy Tootsie things. Yeah, uh, Tootsie rolls in general, I think, uh, have underperformed expectations in life in general. I mean, <laughs> would you describe Tootsie rolls? Given the the people who market them, I think have done a pretty good job, and certainly the rappers who've rapped about them over the years have done mm. a pretty good job of making Tootsie rolls seem like really fun. But I don't think I've ever really enjoyed anything in my mouth with the word tootsie on the wrapper regardless of what it is uh so i would put that out there as something that is like low on my list which is a shame because i like it i'm fond of it but i I don't want to eat it which i guess is what you're supposed to want to do with these things so i mean if we're having a conversation about uh unloved candies uh candy corn has got to make that list um yeah so I'll, I'll, i'll put that out there but like uh slightly more controversial choice for me um most suckers Including um, uh, uh, the, the the ones where you uh, there's like something like gum uh, blow pops, yeah. Uh, not 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 a big fan. Um, between like uh, the the intense sweetness, like the fact that you like really have to commit over a long period of time for it, and then whatever's in the middle for like something like the uh, the, the blow pop uh, is really not that not that satisfying do once you, you get there. Do you remember the ad for the blow pop when we were kids? It was like charms blow pops are two treats in one, two great American treats in one. Was that run nationwide? It was a little. I don't remember that. No, and it was like I just love the idea of two great American treats uh, in one. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a good thing. Um, uh, candy corn is definitely up there on the list of bad candies, but I will eat a whole tub of it if the tub is in front of me. You know that that uh, and that's like that's something you know that's something that we haven't really talked about. Like just kind of discussing the candies in isolation at this sort of high theoretical level, though very on brand for us doesn't actually address the, the lived experience of eating candy where a lot of the point of it is to kind of keep you coming back. Right. And like they're, they're designed, they're engineered to be like, actually candy corn is sort of, is sort of perfect in this um, in this respect because like uh, a couple uh, like a three finger pinch of candy corn is enough to like just toss in your mouth uh, right into uh, you know and immediately start chewing rather than having to deal with them. Um, they have a kind of substantiality to them and almost like a waxiness right in texture, but they dissolve pretty quickly like they lose mass uh pretty quickly unlike the tootsie rolls which you know stick around on your teeth forever um the uh you know and and the flavor of them and things is is this uh 
you know, probably very precisely engineered mix of like sweet and, and uh, ever so tiny bit salty that like, um, ke- keeps you coming back and it pr- promotes, uh, something that I have heard called snackability in snacks, right? The, the, uh, ability to just kind of like automat the, in, get the automatic hand to mouth motion going or something I've heard in food science called session ability. The idea uh, that you can turn like just grabbing something and taking a bite of it into like an eating session. Right. And that, uh, that eating session is, uh, uh, is a quality that the, the engineered food stuff itself has right that that is kind of engineered into the design of the food stuff um you know i don't know i i I can't be the only person with some willpower issues around delicious candies okay when i was saying that i don't really i'm not really into the mythos of it anymore i don't understand it it doesn't mean i won't eat tons of it if it's in front of me and i feel like there's a tragedy to eating candy when you want food it's really sad <laughs> in retrospect, and not just because of the shame of the poor health that it endeavors upon you, but you can eat candy when you want food and never really realize that food was what you wanted. You can just eat the candy, have the experience of eating the candy and be done with it and just never know what it might have been like if instead you'd had a sandwich. Right. Or like a, a, what if what if the, you don't know that the reason you want crispy is because you want a chicken wing. And I yeah. say that kind of getting choked up and taking it personally a little bit. But that's maybe that's just me. Maybe I shouldn't generalize that. Maybe that's sort of me wrestling with my own psychological history, a sort of a, a life, a life where a life of candy instead of food uh, is uh, is might be one way to characterize some of the choices uh, that, that you make in life. But as, not really. As, I don't know. As Cleopatra uh, is described in Antony and Cleopatra, right? She makes hungry where she most satisfies. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So then that would be like a sessionable, salty, like a Pringle. Right? Where it's like, you're not hungry for Pringles until you eat Pringles. Right. And so Pringles, Pringles create the problem that they solve. Right. Oh, just like Cleopatra coming at you. Nice. <laughs> I, I would like to distinguish between the sessionability and particularly, you know, like I, I think that's more I associate that more with savory, salty snacks like chips. You know, it just kind of keeps you coming back for more. Um, and I'd separate that from, at least from myself, a more unhealthy psychology that I have around stress eating. And that's more directly with chocolate candies. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but like, you know, oh, yeah. tough, day in, tough day in the office, uh, you know, when I'm going for my afternoon coffee break. Um, if it's if it's been rough and I need something else to get me over the finish line, that's when I'm going for a Reese's cup right there. Or like the uh, the fancy artisanal version of the, the Reese's Justin cup. cups, right? Uh, yeah. Justin, yeah. those are so yeah. much better than Reese's cups. It's obscene. It's just I, I, and yeah, I'm oh, the I'm Justin, the Justin yeah. peanut butter one. Well, yeah, higher, higher quality ingredients. Uh, Trader Joe's also, by the way, makes a, a very good dark chocolate peanut butter cup. They're the master of excusable candy. <laughs> I'll just get it. Look at this. It's got a it's got a it's got a little font on it. Like I, you look at a ding dong box. I've already told you to look at a ding dong box. Look at that box of ding dongs again. And then imagine instead of the sort of wacky Looney Tunesy font, it's, you know, the background is wood and the, the logo is like branded into the wood. And there's like a picture of a cowboy or something. Right. And it's like, you know, dang, ding, ding dongs. You, you would buy that from Trader Joe's, not thinking it's quite so bad. <laughs> right. Oh, this can't be candy. Really? No, it is. This can't be cookies. Really? No, it is. You mean I can't I could sit down and house an entire box of dunkers and fill myself with shame and pain in my stomach. But it uh, doesn't mean I should. Um, as opposed to I would not do that necessarily. I guess I guess you could see cookies is a separate episode. We don't want to have cookie drift. Cookies are a whole separate thing from candy, and uh, I maintain that pretty severely. So maybe we shouldn't like surf toward cookie town whilst we are uh, – we should not, like those robbers of cereals, uh, steal cookies in a situation where candies are more appropriate. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe if you want to weigh on that, I don't know. I'll let it fly. We've, no. we've got some time. No, no, no absolutely. Let's, uh, let's, let's not. Let's not get into uh, cookies. That's a whole other episode because apparently we jumped in to talk about uh, all kinds of <laughs> – Halloween things, and we didn't not even... spooky at all. 
all. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. We didn't even get past the trick or treating candy. Uh, all right, let's turn to a couple of episode comments on the last episode, uh, episode five hundred thirty-eight. We're always glad to get listener comments. If you would like to leave one on this episode, if you would like to share your favorite, your least favorite candy, uh, tell us why you know we are wrong in our uh, typology or phenomenology of candies. Why or why we are uh, why we are right on you know share some Halloween experiences of of your own please uh just uh head on over to the website you'll find uh this episode click on it the show notes and you'll uh get a place where you can put in a comment and some people did on um on the uh the uh on the last episode which was about the Star Trek The Next Generation TV show episode Darmok. A lot of lot of linguistics, a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting things. But before we get into that, uh Daniel Ruffalo writes in on the subject of walking out of movies, something that we talked about. I saw Sin City in theaters shortly after it came out and during a scene where a certain person dies hard somebody at the front of the theater started shouting obscenities of disbelief the whole way through the theater out of which they stormed <laughs> that's a great use of word order right there <laughs> that is <laughs> that, that actually yeah that is a, a very evocative Sentence. Um, I also like the idea of swearing R-rated curse words at a movie that you're you're troubled by the R-rated content of. That's a, that's <laughs> How could a nice this protagonist irony. in this noir film bite it? <laughs> I'm personally offended. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that yeah, that's a that's a good one for going going out. Um, Thank you, Daniel. All right, on to Margot. Uh, in watching Darmok, my first question is always about what the uh, Tamarian technical manuals must look like. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What, how do you say? You know, how do you say uh, loosen the three loosen the three Torx screws if all you have is uh, Temba, his arms open? <laughs> well, you got to think that their writing isn't necessarily the same as their speech. Because if their speech is based in metaphor, metaphor, then maybe their writing is also based in metaphor. And as such, maybe there is a way that they represent torquing a screw with regards to the metaphorical application of turning force to some other object that might be depicted pictographically rather than uh spoken of for example so basically i don't think that they've invented the alphabet i don't think they have an alphabet I so you're they, saying they, so you're okay. saying it's like it's like uh the twister ravaging the home of auntie m you know right i think, right, right. I think it's more yeah. like uh just like the purely visual ikea instructions that you get that have no written instructions at all well, <laughs> speaking speaking of the experience and visual culture dean moriarty writes in and says another thing this episode made me think about is the oft-quoted uh argument against this episode that with this kind of language these aliens would not be able to tell new stories but i think even from our own human cultures we can see that it would be uh not be hard for their stories to be told almost entirely through visual media even uh just information could be transmitted in a highly visual way they have space flight obviously they have streaming videos hmm yeah, I can see that. That matches with the idea that their writing would have to be idiogrammatical or pictographical rather than alphabetical. Uh, if you don't think of the word as being something that has intrinsic meaning outside of the context of the story that it tells. Yeah. Now, the question then is who invented the first screen? Did they scratch them in the in the ground? And then, oh, well, what did they evolve from? Were they as did they as animals you know, well, I guess not that they're not animals now. Now they're animals wearing costumes to look like other animals. But, um, but, but when they were le- not when they were not at the sort of apex of intelligence that they are now relative to their history, how did they communicate? Was there some sort of other method of communication that they used uh, that would be unintuitive to us when they didn't have speech? That like that how how would an animal incapable of speech communicate with another animal incapable of speech using metaphor? Is, is kind of a tricky question. Maybe I'll just leave that as an exercise to the reader, unless you guys have some strong feelings about it one way or the other. Involving metaphor. Metaphor, metaphor. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about what the Temerian, like, prestige streaming video dramas are 
I mean, like, like this Darmok and the story of Darmok and Jalad just get remade over and over again each time. <laughs> <laughs> Progressively grittier, right. And more realistic. In the the dark, yeah, the dark gritty reboot of of Darmok and Jalad. Dean Moriarty continues to say the other thing I thought of: it's entirely possible these aliens have way more metaphors than we see them using, and they use them faster. But they're talking to people who can't understand them. So what we hear in the episode is their attempt to speak slowly to be understood. <laughs> <laughs> dark, dark, <laughs> Darmok and Chalad at Tanagra. Darmok and Chalad at at Tanag. Darmok and Darmok. I need to go to the embassy. Uh, Jens writes in, or Jens, I, I should say, I'm sorry. Uh, I, if I co- correctly remember the secondary literature available at the time, and this is uh, secondary literature about Star Trek The Next Generation, not about linguistics. If I correctly remember the secondary literature available at the time, the writers of the episode deliberately chose Darmok as a phonetic reversal of the word comrade, as the entire episode was inspired by a historical lack of communication between the U.S. and Russia. What's Jalad? Uh-huh. That's Dalaj. Jalad. Uh, yeah, D- Dalaj. Dalaj. Yeah. Dalaj and in charge, United States of America. <laughs> it's Kennedy. And, and it's, yeah, Dalaj. No, I like it. I like that idea. The Cubans, cool. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Like, but Star Trek Six is a better take on U.S. Russian relations, right, than Darmok is, right? Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, three three act of structure. I wonder how historicity and reinterpretation apply to this language. If, for example, a new governing body comes into power by claiming that it can make Tanagra great again, does this affect how the story is told, and therefore how what the metaphor expresses? Yeah, it is. It is sort of. It seems like it's sort of important that they be sort of at most mytho historical places like Troy or something like that and not real places like Bolivia or something. Um, you know, I don't know. The, you could say that uh, like like uh, actually while we're while we're in um, uh, while we're in Latin America. Right. You could say that Venezuela is a is a place name that has had great shift in its metaphorical valence uh in in recent history right so uh yeah. there's there's um or I, won- I wonder matter, given the I wonder that discards oh, yeah that's true brazil yeah or fr- frankly frankly or the united states mm. i wonder if these if the tamarian teenagers don't individuate but instead eat their parents <laughs> that would explain why they have no pressure to come up with new stories and they never try to kind of come up with new ways of seeing things. Maybe there's some sort of way that the biological matter is passed down from generation to generation in a symbolic manner. And the Federation de- will deeply regret having made friends with them, realizing what horrible murderers <laughs> they are. <laughs> Darmok to you, Darmoker. Uh, our own Jordan Stokes writes in and says we should make a social network called Tamaria with the basic functionality of Twitter except the only thing you can post are image macros of the dialogue from Star Trek The Next Generation (laughs) to which uh, listener John C. replies with one alienated tweak I think you could probably get people involved just to show that they know all their stuff Uh, rather than images the content could only be the character names and scene references like uh, Picard and Worf season 4 episode 5 I've seen 13 for I didn't know we grew up in similar circumstances. That's <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, it's a funny, funny thing to which I add Simpsons did it. Simpsons did it. Simpsons did it. There is, I think, a visual search engine of the Simpsons that does that where you can search for a piece of dialogue and get an image macro of what the uh, uh, of, of like a freeze frame of the, the thing and, and the dialogue in Simpsons font. Yeah, this isn't quite that, but there is a wonderful trove of Star Trek image macros uh, that overlays uh, obscenity-laden dialogue on top of classic Star Trek footage. It's called Swear Trek. Uh, Look it up on Twitter. I highly recommend it. You know, it's funny working in technology and going from having had a a number of of different jobs in the last 
half dozen, 10 years, something like that. Um, I have set up a lot of Slack. Well, now there are Slack workspaces, but before it was, you know, hip chat or other chat software with uh, the ability to post images or sort of emojis or before emoji was the thing we were thinking about, like proto emojis, uh, things, things like this. And the first one I always install is the Picard facepalm. Uh, that and that's just I find, and it's the thing I use more than anything else in my professional life, which maybe should mm-hmm. tell me something about my career. <laughs> I, I don't work in uh, places cool enough to use Slack, so instead, in emails in my office, I've literally the entire content of the email responses: Picard face palm dot jpeg. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love love to see how the lawyers deal with that if it's ever subpoenaed or or something like that. It's discoverable, that's for sure. Oh, man. Strange new worlds and new civilizations are also discoverable. Sorry, Pete, I interrupted you. Oh, just that I like to use the thumbs up and ninja emotes in Skype a lot. That's all. Yeah. Like, yay, my work here is done. I'm out. (laughs) Emo. Yeah, uh, my go-to Skype is emo, as you well know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, thanks very much to all those listeners for writing in. Once again, uh, find the show notes for this episode. You can go to the website and find that. And there you will see a place where you can comment on this episode. Uh, candy, non-spooky Halloween, and uh, all sorts of, of seasonal goodness. Guys, we didn't even get to pumpkin spice. How unbasic of us, yeah. or basic. I don't even know what basic is anymore. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, right. It's, it's uh, come full circle. It's the basic Ouroboros eating its tail. All right. Thanks very much uh, for listening. And thank you, Mark and Pete, for podcasting about non-spooky Halloween. I feel like all my fears have been assuaged, and I'm very grateful to you for that. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. I'm going to finish this Kit Kat bars, you guys. I'm going to go crazy. I got two uh, rows left. Uh, instead of breaking them long ways, it's going to bite into them uh, oh my uh, straight God. across. That, that is, know, right? Okay, that's that's an insane amount Ready? of willpower. Three, okay, here it goes. Two, three, two, one. Mm. <laughs> Man, the Kit Kat makes a weird groaning noise when you bite. <laughs> <laughs>